All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. It's a great joy to have several of our collegians making their way back uh, to home uh, over break here for Christmas break. I've seen some of you come back. It's good to have you here. I'm glad to finally meet some of you. Uh, having uh, been just here a few months, I look forward to getting an opportunity to get with all our collegians if, if and when they do come back. They usually find their way back around Christmas time, you know, good food, free housing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I am glad to see you, and uh, we're so thankful that you're joining us for services uh, this Sunday. Uh, it's hard for me to believe, but we're just about done with the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 4, and the way I've got it mapped out, next Sunday is when I will actually be done with the entire epistle. So in the morning and the evening service, I'll preach two sermons uh, wrapping up the rest of Philippians. But it's been a joy and a privilege for me. Uh, I have preached through portions of the book before it, never have preached on Philippians 4, uh, this entire chapter, and so this has all been uh, all new, new learning for me as well, and I've really enjoyed it um, as, a, as a preacher, as a fellow believer. Last several months when we've made our way through the book of Philippians, uh, we put an emphasis, as is on the slide behind me, on the concept of thinking or our mindset. And we describe the sort of mindset, uh, Paul describes the sort of mindset that believers should have. In chapter 1, he puts an emphasis on the gospel. We need to have a gospel mindset where the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the fore of our, our thinking and our mind, where we value him and we love to, to share him with others. Uh, chapter 2, he then gives words of admonition to the Philippian church about having a unified mindset, having a humble mindset like Jesus Christ himself in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Then also having a sacrificial or uh, a selfless mindset in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we said the sort of mindset that he's emphasizing here is a Christ-like mindset in the way uh, we would behave and act as New Testament believers. This morning we come to an important passage in the book, Philippians 4 verses 8 and 9. This passage is described by many scholars as the purpose statement of the book, and I would tend to agree with them. And in this purpose statement, just two verses this morning, I want you to notice at the very end of verse 8, the emphasis on our mind again. At the end of verse 8, he says, think on these things. Actually, verses 8 and 9 are two carefully constructed and parallel sentences that form one paragraph. And the subject, if I were to uh, put it in just a few words, the subject of verses 8 and 9 is genuine Christian character. And uh, what we're going to, to look at and see this morning is that genuine Christian character includes at least two things. It includes, first, uh, an internal resolve or focus internal focus, but then it also includes external actions or behavior. And so as we look at these two verses, we'll see that together. In the past four months, our family has been occasionally reading from a missionary biography um, when we actually do eat meals together, which is becoming less and less frequent. The missionary biography we're reading is called Bless God and Take Courage, The Judson History and Legacy. It's a book I would highly recommend to you. It's a great biography, probably one of the best, better ones I've ever read, although 
To be honest, I'm only about 50 pages in, so as long as it keeps going this way, it's one of the better ones I've ever read. Ann and Ann Nyram Judson were pioneer missionaries to Burma. And the reason I want to read a small portion of this biography to you to this morning is because I think that it captures both their internal resolve or focus to please God and their external actions or right behavior. This portion in the story, uh, the true story of Ann and Adoniram Judson, they're, they're making their way to Burma and they're on a boat and Ann is expecting since there was no time to find someone else, the ship was sailing. Not many days out to sea, Anne became gravely ill and started early labor. Her only assistant was Adoniram. Frantic with anxieties, he struggled to help in a situation completely outside of his skills. Anne was deathly ill, and their son was stillborn. Their firstborn, who never drew a breath, was buried in the Bay of Bengal. And the grief-stricken young couple had only each other for comfort. And was so ill that Adoniram agonized over losing his wife as well. To add to their distress, the old vessel would not stay on course, and they were threatened with wrecking on a cannibal shore as they perilously drifted between the little and greater Andaman Islands. The stroke of seeming misfortune may have saved both ship and Anne. They were becalmed in a spot where the waters were still as a mill pond, and Anne was finally able to rest. Then the ship caught favorable winds, and their goal, Burma, grew close. Anne and Adoniram were filled with conflicting emotions. They'd been striving toward this goal for years. Now they wondered if the dream was actually a nightmare. It was Tuesday, July 13, 1813, when the shores of Rangoon, Burma, appeared on the horizon. What could possibly have been further from the beautiful golden shore of the Judson's early dreams than the straggling, squalid shoreline assailing their eyes? It was more like a cruel parody of a dream of two soul-weary wanderers who gazed with both dread and anticipation at what lay before them. Their first views of Calcutta had been exciting, colorful. By stark contrast, Rangoon was a wretched-looking place. The city had been flooded by heavy rains, and as Adoniram stood on the rail and strained for his first view of the shore, the coastline was shrouded in fog. Anne was still too weak to stand, and Adoniram could only describe for her the depressing sights that slowly emerged through the drifting mist. But they had arrived with the determination that this was literally a mission for life. And Anne said, quote, it was in our hearts to live and die with the Burmans, and we in this place induced to pitch our tent. I highlight that story for you because I believe Ann and, I, Ann and Iram Judson demonstrate genuine Christian character in both an internal focus or a right mindset and their willingness to take steps of obedience to the ends of the earth. So this morning, we'll learn that genuine Christian character involves two things. First, in verse 8, we learn that genuine Christian character includes or involves an internal focus. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise... 
think on these things. Verse 8, Paul talks about the significance or the importance of the Christian's mind. You say, I'm a Christian. Don't I have a Christian mind? I say, not necessarily. I have known many Christians who have had severe problems with their thoughts. For some of them, it seems that their whole pattern of thought, their whole thought pattern remains much like that of an unbeliever. This is a terrible inconsistency in the lives of these professing believers. In the secret recesses of their mind, they might cultivate illicit or impure thoughts and fail to go very long at all without spiritual victory. Or they nurture untrue thoughts about how others continually victimize them or neglect their needs. Their thoughts are so internal. They begin to analyze their own things and their own needs and their own love languages so that they become skeptical of others in the dark corners of their mind. They're so turned internally in their own thought life that they expect things to go poorly for them in just about every interaction because no one truly loves them or reaches out to them. But verse 8 in particular, I think, will help us learn more about the Christian mind. One that God is transforming for his own glory. Verse 8, I I see two significant parts to the verse. First, I want you to notice with me the noble objects of the Christian's focus. In verse 8, Paul gives a representative list of the sort of things that believers should be thinking about. And this list of adjectives here covers a broad range of virtues that believers are are supposed to set their minds on. While many of our minds are often set on on little or lesser or insignificant things, God calls us as New Testament believers to set our minds on lofty or noble things. Let's look at these six adjectives. First, he says, whatever is true, we're to set our focus on. The word true means that we should control our minds to focus not on things that involves lies or flattery, but honest and truthful things. I've heard it said often that we should not believe lies. And I think that that, of course, is very true. But we will begin to believe lies if we allow our minds to continually come back to thoughts that do not conform with the truth of Scripture regarding ourselves or our relationship with other believers in the church, or relationship with other family members, or even our relationship with God. Paul says, whatever is true, that should be what you're thinking on. You say, I don't know where truth, where, where truth is or where it comes from. I say, truth is found in the word of God. Go there. For thoughts do not conform to what's clearly laid out in Scripture. Uh, they're untrue, and we should not be thinking those thoughts. But then letter B, the second uh, adjective, he says, whatever is honorable. The word honorable is often translated revered or majestic, but here I think it should be translated noble or worthy of respect. It's interesting to me that the word honorable is not used very, in, very much in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, many of these words aren't used very frequently in the New Testament. But the word honorable, the only places I could find it were in the pastoral epistles, in the list that, that is describing deacons and their wives. 
Deacons are to be honorable, translated by many of the English translations as dignified, and so are their wives to be dignified. In the book of Titus, this word is used as well to describe elderly men in the church. They're to be dignified, they're to be honorable, they're to be worthy of respect. So when Paul says that we should think about things that are honorable, this word refers to lofty, majestic things, things that lift our mind from the cheap things all around us to noble thoughts and good thoughts of moral worth and value. That leads to a third description in the same verse. He says, whatever is just, we are to think about. Paul says just, he means right, fair, or equitable. We cannot allow ourselves to meditate on on unfair or inequitable things or practices lest we start acting that way or lest we start treating people in unfair and inequitable ways. Then he says as well that we are to set our minds on things or whatever things are pure. Regarding this, one commentator, Walter Hansen, writes, he said, for Paul... Purity in all of life begins in the thought life. The word purity here has to do with things that are clean, things that are not tainted by evil, pollution, or ungodly associations. We're to think only on pure things. Right? See it in the text? That means, of course, that I cannot just sit back without restraint. When what is on TV turns from pure things to impure things, it can happen in a second, right? No, it's wrong to cultivate impure thinking that is triggered by what we watch or meditate upon as we're gazing at the TV. Instead, we need to get up off of the couch. We need to change the channel. Or in some cases, you you have enough money to afford a remote control. You need to hit the remote. Get off the couch, turn it off, or leave the room. Whatever is pure, that's the sort of thing we should be thinking about. Then his admonition turns to whatever is lovely, in verse 8 as well, whatever is lovely. This speaks of those things that call forth love. Again, this is a rare word. This word isn't even found at all in the New Testament, any other place than right here. But the main idea, in my opinion, is that Uh, He's saying that the Christian's mind is to be set on things that elicit from others, not bitterness or hostility, but admiration and affection. In other words, we should think about the sort of things that if we performed them, if we did them, it would call others to love, value, and appreciate us. Things that call forth love from other people. Those are the sort of contemplations that we should have as New Testament believers. And then finally, with the last adjective, he says, and we should also think on things that are commendable. We're to put our mind on commendable things. This virtue, this final one, I think, has less to do with our character and more to do with our reputation or testimony. And so the word commendable speaks to the fact that we should be well spoken of by other people. And again, This word is not found in any other place in the New Testament or in the Septuagint, but it's used here to express what is kind or likely to win other people over to ourselves. Okay? 
These are the noble objects that should be the focus of New Testament believers. And that brings us to the other part of the verse, the other main part of the verse, and that's what I'd call the strong command or the strong imperative. Think on these things. Near the end of verse 8, Paul assumes two things to be true. If you're looking down in your Bible at verse 8, he says, if excellence exists, and it does, and if there are things worthy of praise on the planet, and there are, we must think about true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable things. That's the point of this verse. It's a strong command. He says we're to think, and the word for think here um, means to reckon or to calculate, and as a result, to be able to properly evaluate a person, thing, quality, or event. Okay? So here again, we come back to this idea of, of considering or thinking, processing on these sort of things. I've been covering this for months. I mean, if you haven't got it at this point, we might have to start Philippians all over again. Okay. But he's been going after our minds in the way we would meditate or think or consider on different things. We've taken the last few months to do this, but have you actually really stopped to evaluate just how amazing God has created us? I tried to do it at points this week in thinking especially about our mind and the human brain and the relationship between each other. But to be honest with you, I got overwhelmed multiple times along the journey. We are amazing creatures. The human brain weighs anything from three to five pounds. Um, I don't know if it's depending on how bright you are <laughs> or body mass. I'm not certain. I like one definition of the brain that I read this week online. It said it is the three pound pounds of convoluted mass of gray and white matter in our heads serving to control and coordinate our mental and physical actions. Gray mass in our head, that's our brain, three to five pounds. And somehow God has perfectly designed our brain and our minds so that according to the laboratory of neuroimaging, the average person has between 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day. That's two to 3,000 thoughts an hour. That is, and I did the math, you can check it, 35 to 45 thoughts a minute. I don't know how in the world they figured that out. Actually, as I was reading that, I found myself kind of skeptical. I'm always skeptical about those things. Like, yeah, how did they actually figure that out? I have to say, I spent at least two seconds thinking about it uh, <laughs> this week. That's anywhere near the truth, though. The brain is amazing. And some way, it enables our thinkings, and our minds somehow are connected or related to our brains. Our minds have the amazing ability to process all of the daily events in our lives, to prioritize things, to select from the thousands of choices that we face daily, and to interpret the significance of all of our thoughts. God has made us in amazing ways. 
One of the most important lessons in the Bible that you'll ever see is that our minds were made to enjoy fellowship with God. That's how he created us. And these six broad categories of things are God's things. If this week you forget the list of six adjectives, you say, oh man, I can't remember. Is it like lovely? What are, what are Don't worry. Think about God. Think about God. Because he's the epitome of all these six things, these six adjectives. These are his things. This sort of thinking is a part of genuine Christian character. May God give us grace to think in these ways. But then uh, there's a second part to the text, and that's found in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the main controversies of, or contributions of verse 8 above is that I think it totally destroys the thought that our thoughts are not important. Your thoughts are important. And God calls you to focus your mind on the six categories of things he just said. God does this in other places in the New Testament as well. I think of 2 Corinthians 10. Is it 10 in verse 4 where Paul the Apostle says that we must bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Remember that passage? So verse 8 contributes in this way. It helps us to see our thoughts are important. So if you're sitting in the room this evening or this morning or in the parlor or the, the family room, and you say, well, it's just my thought life. It, it doesn't really matter that much. You've got to reckon with Philippians 4 and verse 8. You've got to reckon with 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 where, where it says we're to bring every thought into captivity. But verse 9 actually makes a, another substantial contribution to the importance of, of our minds. And, and that is, in my opinion, this is what I think Paul's doing. He's showing that thoughts are closely connected to behavior. Thoughts are closely connected to behavior. That means that your thoughts are important because eventually, over time, they will shape your conduct. One commentator said it this way about verses 8 and 9. He said, Paul wants the Philippians to reflect on the virtues in verse 8 so that their conduct, verse 9, will be shaped by those virtues. Your thoughts impact your behavior. Some of you might say something like this. Well, my thought life isn't really that important. I mean, I, I would really never choose to act on those thoughts. Those are just things that I cultivate privately. How important can the private arena of the mind actually even be? Well, the scriptures argue against that line of thinking when we think that way. For instance, in the Proverbs, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23 and verse 7. In the original setting of that proverb, you, you see that this proverb is actually about 
how a stingy man's stinginess starts with his thoughts. He acts stingy because he has stingy thoughts about how much hosting a meal is going to cost him. I have to describe some of the ways we think about wedding feasts, right? Ceremonies. So the stingy man cuts every corner on he, he can on the meal, and consequently, the meal tastes so bad that if you read the next verse in that proverb, that the guests will vomit out the morsels that they've eaten. I mean, for this stingy man, it all starts with his thoughts. That's one of the ways Scripture develops the connection between our thoughts and our behavior, and that's a negative one. Let me give you just briefly a positive one, and literally, there are all kinds of different places you could go in both the Old and New Testament to establish the connection between what we think about and our behavior. But a positive example would be Romans 12, 1 and 2. Again, you don't need to turn there in your Bible, but if you remember in that text, Paul encourages the Roman believers to be transformed, to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And how does he advise them to be transformed? To be transformed by, this is how, the renewing of your minds. The renewing of your minds. See, it all starts in the mind. And the battle for our mind is important because it affects our external behavior and most definitely affects our genuine Christian character. Let's look a little closer at verse 9. In verse 9, I see three parts. First, Paul draws our attention to some important areas of observation. I just read the verse to you a little while ago, but but if you notice, if you look down in verse 9 again in your Bible, he lists out four ways that the Philippians might be able to imitate him. He says, the things you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Uh, The way I divide those four, breaking them up very quickly, is I think the first two form a set, and the second two form a set. The first two talk about uh, Paul's... uh, Paul's teaching that he, he, he gave to them. The second two have to do with his behavior. And so they have both learned and received Paul's teaching. The word received here is not merely a repetition of the word for learned. It's not like he's just giving synonym after synonym, but I think rather the word to receive in this context is a technical term for the receiving of the tradition that Paul had handed on to them that they were to hand on to other people. They had the opportunity to uh, both learn and receive things from Paul and his teaching. The last two, uh, they had also heard and seen Paul. I think these probably describe his behavior. Now, their hearing of Paul might actually refer to his preaching that he had engaged with them while he was there, so it could be related to his teaching. Or it might just be describing the fact that they had heard him, they'd have conversations, they, they heard what he talked about, uh, what he demonstrated through his words. The word seen, they're seeing Paul, means that he was able to show them in his life or through his life what doctrine should look like in living form. And so first of all, we see these areas of observation, okay, Okay related to Paul's teaching and his behavior. 
Secondly, though, in this text, and importantly, like just like verse 8, very parallel, remember? Two sentences, parallel, there's a command. And the command is at the end of the verse. The command is practice these things. Practice the things you've been able to observe in my teaching and in observing my behavior. Now, the word practice here is a word that could be translated do or accomplish these things. And very importantly, with this command, Paul makes it abundantly clear for believers that uh, he's calling for something in, in Philippians that's beyond mere contemplation, but it gets to the point of action. Okay? We've engaged in four months of study on our mindset, but if we just think of it all as a cognitive or as an intellectual thing, it really would do us some value. But Paul wants to take it farther than that. He says you also have an obligation to practice or to do or accomplish the things that I've modeled and taught you. And so the command is to, to do or to practice these things. But the text doesn't end here. And there's one final phrase near the end of this passage. Finally, Paul, Paul also gives us here an important promise in the text. That's why I take this last phrase, starting with the word and. The word and, I think, gives here a result or a promise. Okay, and so we read the very end of verse 9. As we think this way, and as we practice this way, and the God of peace will be with you. It's interesting to me, again, that... um, in verse 7, he uses very similar language. Beginning of verse 7, and the peace of God. End of verse 9, and the God of peace. Some people believe there's some sort of development between the two concepts. He talks first about the peace that God can give, and then about the God is the source of peace. I I actually don't think there's necessarily development. I think they're roughly synonymous. Okay, because you really can't have peace if you don't have God. He's the source of peace, and this is his true nature. Regardless, the promise is that we get God, his presence, and his peace if we follow the commands in verses 8 and 9. Men and women, God made your entire being to long for His presence. And when you choose to think on impure or unworthy things, or when you choose to practice things that do not conform to apostolic teaching, you won't fully experience, enjoy God or experience His peace. To come through this passage of Scripture, it has been very clear to me. Genuine Christian character includes two things. Our internal thoughts and our external acts of obedience. I trust God that by His good grace, He would enable us 
to gain victory in both the arena of our minds, our contemplations, but then also in our external conformity to Jesus Christ. Let's close this service with a moment of quiet contemplation. I invite you to close your eyes in your seat there. You can leave Philippians 4, 8, and 9 open in your Bible if you'd like. And just consider these two arenas in your own mind. Would you first briefly consider your thoughts and your thought patterns with me for a moment? How are you doing in the arena of your mind? I think in the arena of the mind, there is no perfect person. We're all filled with sinful attitudes and dispositions in our minds. But perhaps there's some thoughts or meditations that you should confess before God today. Won't you do that? Most importantly, won't you ask Him for help? I mean, how in the world am I going to go about changing thousands of thoughts? <laughs> Answer, grace. God's grace, God's help. God must change us. And he is committed to do that to those of you who know Jesus Christ. And I encourage you with this. I think over time, gradually, progressively, he will make you more like Christ as you confess your sinful thoughts and determined to grow through his enablement. Secondly, though, perhaps there are ways that you've not been conforming externally to the good teaching or to Christian examples that you have around you. Would you take a moment here at the end of our service and confess those sinful actions as well? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we believe with all of our hearts that Philippians captures the Word of God. That this book, written by Paul the Apostle nearly 2,000 years ago, was inspired by the Spirit of God, and every word is important. Lord, within this sermon this morning and our worship service, you have given us two commands through the Scriptures. Think on noble and lofty things and do things that conform to the Scriptures and apostolic teaching. God, by your good grace, would you forgive us where we fail and would you enable us to gain the victory in our minds and in our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.